On this edition of Tech Rep Queen, you're going to hear from Maisha Cannon, industry leader in recruiting and sourcing. She is such a presence, and I had the pleasure of meeting Maisha about four years ago at a conference called SourceCon for talent acquisition professionals that are sourcers. You're going to hear us talk about that. But she was a keynote speaker, and my sister held space like I have never seen before and was just such a presence, her poise and just all around good vibes or energy. And she has been just an integral integral part of my career in the last couple of years. I'm just so excited to be able to amplify her voice on Tech Rap Queen. You're going to learn the difference between what a recruiter does and what a sorcerer does and get a you know behind the scenes look into her journey into uh, sourcing and recruiting and what that all entails. It's just so appropriate to have her on Tech Rap Queen, especially during this time, whether you're listening to this episode at the end of the year or the beginning of the year um, or whenever. Uh, But a lot of people, you know, are experiencing new year, new you type things and are revamping resumes and, and profiles. And so why not hear from an industry expert and get a behind the scenes look into how she goes about uh, sourcing and her just journey into the field. Energy, vibes, inspiration. I'm Renee Reed, and this is Tech Rap. Queen. Our guest is the. Hey now, double E. I wasn't yeah. expecting that. <laughs> <laughs> the, the one and only. I am just so tickled today to be uh, talking to the Maisha Cannon. Welcome to Tech Rap Queen. That's right. Insert the full applause here. Let's get the <laughs> clap track in there. <laughs> All the clap track. Yes. The grand applause. Yes. Applause, applause, applause. The Welcome. Royal Court. Yes. So happy yes. to be here with the Queen in the Royal Court. <laughs> uh, you were in a good space. So let's start out just taking us back to the Maisha in in college. What are you thinking you are going to be? What are you studying? Just take us back. Wow. <laughs> That's a good, good place to start. You know, it's funny in college, I really wasn't thinking a lot about career, believe it or not. So like my earliest, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up that I remember was sixth grade in the yearbook. And I said, I wanted to be a lawyer and own my own firm. That was sixth grade, me. Yeah. <laughs> I love so, was there was there an example that you had that hmm. was like a Claire Huxtable? I don't know if that's probably too far, but like, no, what? it had to have been the Huxtables because nobody in my, you know, direct lineage was any kind of lawyer or, you know, or doctor or working at a firm. Like that was the part that kind of tickled me when I look back at the yearbook, all my own firm. Like that was different. Not just lawyer. <laughs> right. I still Did have my you... sixth grade yearbook. Somebody digitally scanned it on Facebook in the little elementary school group. So I was able to see it. <laughs> That's yes. Yeah, so weird. So I think by college, I, I entered majoring in business. So I thought that would be maybe like a generic kind of catch all. 
But about two years into the business program, when I sat down in that statistics class, I realized this ain't me. This I've been bamboozled. This is this is not the life I want. <laughs> so I remembered, like around my first year, one of my accounting prefer, um, professors, as I was exiting and he was handing me my accounting quiz that I got a C on, he said, some of the concepts, like, you know, you seem to not be getting, but the written essay part is so good. He's like, you're such a good writer. Mm. And I thought, hmm. So that came back to me year two statistics class. And I promptly went to the registrar and asked, was it too late to change majors <laughs> two years in the game? <laughs> and thankfully they said, no, it's not too late because you've been taking prerequisites. So I switched my major to English two years into my um, academic career at Loyola Marymount in Los Angeles. And then from there, it was smooth sailing. Like, you know, my GPA went from like struggle bus 2.9 to 4.0. Just the last two wow. years were a cinch. Yeah, because I was finally doing something that I was actually strong at, you know, with the writing. So you, you know, were was, in your lane. Yep, you were in, in my lane. Mm-hmm. And still wasn't thinking about careers because I was working three jobs anyway to help pay tuition. So I guess I always knew I could get a job. I was just trying to get that paper, right? That paper that our parents told us was going to open so many doors and make that American dream possible. So I was just trying to get the degree. <laughs> Three jobs during undergrad. Mm-hmm. One semester I worked for LA Times um, from like two, it was like a weird shift, like a 5 a.m. to noon going into one of the newsprint rooms and just like separating the sections of the physical newspaper. Remember back in the day when they used to have a full paper with like real estate. Yes. So I would just have, I remember all the newsprint on my fingers as I would drive back to campus in my Jetta because I was just separating papers and putting them on the proper shelves for the archives. So yeah, I did that. And then the other two jobs were thankfully on campus. So one with the yearbook and one with the, the school newspaper. So yeah. All that and still got loans to this day. So uh, that wasn't very strategic, was it? (laughs) (laughs) So you get a degree in English. Yes, English literature. And then what catapults your career into the recruiting and uh, sourcing space? Because that's not something that you go into school and necessarily say, I want to be a recruiter. Yeah, no, that's not one of the answers you get when you ask kids what they want to be when they grow up at all. <laughs> Funny enough, I think that part of my, you know, kind of career launch was, was um, long before college, if you can believe that. So as a high school junior, I started working. My first job was an internship through USC, the university where I ended up going back and get my master's. But my second job was an internship through a program called Yes to Jobs. And it was an acronym for Youth Employment Summer. And their uh, tagline at the time was, people can't be what they don't know exist. So it was a group of Black professionals that were going to the inner city, South Central LA, where I was from, taking youth out of South Central and giving them internships in the entertainment industry. So one of the fortunate things about being raised in the hood, right, in Los Angeles, is that your proximity to Hollywood and Beverly Hills and all those cities is 25 minutes away, right? So they took this group of Black youth out the hood and sent us to all the entertainment companies. So Sony, um, Capitol Records, you know, um, at that time, remember, movies were big, music contracts were big, like artists had deals and had to go into physical buildings. So 
even my brother matriculated through that program. He, I think he did his internship at Warner Brothers. So it was just, that was my first exposure to working. And I happened to get placed in HR when I did my internship. So other people were placed in production and on set or with the music you know, team or the licensing team. And I got placed in HR. So that was my very early introduction as a 15 year old. And that's kind of how I knew like, oh, I can always do that then, you know, after because- college entertainment needs hr right. as well like it's not just in front of the camera or right. behind the camera or in the studio and this is in high school in high school mm-hmm. <clears throat> i know amazing opportunity even at the time i didn't really appreciate it fully you know um you know i remember working on the lot at nbc when i was in college and like seeing in one day i think i saw stevie wonder and melinda williams cuz they were going to be on the like tonight show or whatever so it's like, you don't even get starstruck when you're from LA. So yeah, it was just like a really fun time. And I was, I was excited because I was the HR assistant back then. So I was doing like posting the job announcements all over the lot at NBC and recording the job hotline. I don't know if you remember job hotline before. Come on. <laughs> I was the voice and be like, this week's job listings are, you know, and then I would get to like welcome, you know, people who were um, had interviewed and been hired, do the new hire orientation, help them make their badges and some old school badge makers. So, yeah, that was like my induction into HR and entertainment. So, yeah, that was pretty early. So I guess maybe in the back of my mind in college, I knew I can always go back and do that. But, yeah, that started even before college. That's incredible. And I just want to take a moment to pause to acknowledge where we are today compared to how people had to find jobs and apply to jobs. If you, I I mean, it's probably a small percentage, but if you, maybe not a small percentage, but there was a time, great Royal court where you had to call a hotline and get your pen and paper ready because trust, like if you miss that, like listing and stuff, you'd have to literally wait (laughs) Play it back like the movie theater. You got to wait. Oh, you missed the time. (laughs) So uh, you had to make sure that you had a pen and paper ready to write down everything. You are sending me right now. Right. And then you had to, you know, mail your resume in to that address or maybe fax it if you were fortunate, right, to have that dollar that you needed at Kinko's to send a fax. (laughs) And then you had to wait. You had to wait. You had to wait. Isn't that incredible? And so like fast forward now when, and I know we're in a different time, but when I hear people who are so frustrated and like not hearing back and it's just like, if you only knew the (laughs) process. That's right. Yeah. To apply. Yeah. I remember it was called the black hole at one point when people would apply online when it was new. They said it was like the black hole of resumes because they would never hear back. So yeah, it's always been a process that's been quite challenging for job seekers, I'm sure, and just frustrating. Mm-hmm. You get back into a space that, lo and behold, you had been a part of back in high school. And what is that like in kicking off the career as a recruiter or sourcer? Yeah. What came yeah. first? I, right. That's a good question. Which comes first, the chicken or the egg? For me, it was recruiter first. So my first full-time recruiting job was at E! Entertainment back in 2003. So that was like my first full recruiter where I wasn't, you know, like a coordinator or assistant. Um, And it was a really great learning experience. I was fortunate at that time to actually have the tutelage of a Black woman. Um, Actually, she's a Nigerian-American woman, Uchenna, 
who was kind of like my mentor and my guide at that time. And so that was just phenomenal to be like getting ramped up under someone that looked like me because that hadn't been the norm, right? Early in your career. Right. Or in right. that point. Wow. Right. Even to that point. So, and, and I had worked for one other um, Black woman who I write about in a blog about the five best people that I've worked for, Faye Clerk. But she was much more senior leadership, right? So that felt more like unattainable for me as an intern. Right. But to work with Uchenna so closely where she was like a senior recruiter, I was a recruiter that changed the game for me because she was so well versed in all things like HR benefits, you know, employee relations, recruiting. So I was just learning, learning, learning and just, you know, excited to be interviewing people who were excited to be potentially working at E-Entertainment. So it was just like excitement level was peak all around. I'm geeked to see them. They're geeked to be there. <laughs> and even if they don't get the job, right, because most candidates won't, I was still able to kind of build relationships and stay connected. There's still people on my Facebook now that I interviewed at E, believe it or not, mostly Black people, that we just kept in touch because we remembered each other's names. They continued to move through entertainment. And it's just like we had that bond from just that recruiter candidate interaction. Almost so, yes. 20 years later. Mm-hmm. Yep. And you're still, yep. still connected. That's so, incredible. I know. And I think that's one of the things that I just really loved about you as a person. Like you just had this natural ability to build relationship from the stage and connect with people from the stage, from your presentation to your content, what you're delivering. And I was just like, I felt like I knew you. <laughs> For years before he was saying hello. That's dope. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. I didn't realize that. So you go from the entertainment industry and have this amazing career journey through tech as well. What was the difference or the dichotomy between being in those two different spaces? That's a really good question. I think, so entertainment was great. But the reason that I wanted to get out of entertainment is that it felt like it was quite fickle and cyclical, you know, like companies were constantly being, you know, um, acquired. Um, I remember when I was at E, the Turner Corporation bought us. And so then with every buyout comes this layoff rumor. And I remember that time again, Ichin and I were like, well, who's going to stay and who's going to go? Cause I don't want to work here without you. So we actually both jumped the gun and left because of the, you know, she went to USC and I went to, I think, a, a retail company, Hot Topic at that time. So, yeah, it was really interesting during those times. So I ventured out of entertainment because I wanted something I thought more stable. Um, but as I've learned, even in tech, there is no stability. Right. So Google was my first tech recruiting, tech sourcing gig um, some years later. Um and just the speed of things was very different. <laughs> you know, you know that from working in tech. And the other thing that I think has been most different from entertainment to tech is like how candidates see you. I wrote a blog once that in entertainment, I was like the neighborhood hero as a recruiter. But in tech, I was the neighborhood zero, like no love from the candidates that I was trying to source and engage. And I learned later because engineers who I was trying to recruit are just inundated with recruiters. And so it wasn't the nostalgia or the excitement that I got, <clears throat> excuse me, in LA, you know, like, oh, wow, recruiters saw my resume and they're reaching out. It's like another recruiter in my inbox in LinkedIn out of the other 300 recruiters that I don't know, not interested, you know. So that was the biggest shock for me is like, oh, I'm not as appreciated 
here in tech, you know, like I really have to hustle just to get a candidate to want to talk to me. So that was very different. You mentioned being a sorcerer. And I know like when we look at the history of recruiting, like the sorcerer right. form later on. Yeah, no, I agree. So back when I started recruiting in 2003, for sure, I had never heard of sourcing at that point, 2003. However, I learned lady, later Shally Sterkle, he's kind of um, credited as being one of the pioneers of talent sourcing. He came up with it kind of like in the mid 90s. Um, and I think he was out of Atlanta. So maybe it's something that hadn't made it to the West Coast or East Coast yet. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure what industry he started in, but I think around that time that you're thinking of, I think it became more pronounced for sure in like the tech spaces, you know, because by the time I got to like tech in 2013 or so, like they had had sourcers for a couple years, you know, and the team I was on of sources was like 300 deep. So there were sourcers, you know, at the Googles, like the LinkedIn's, they had sources for sure by that time. Um, but yeah, it evolved slowly just out of the need, I think, to separate all of the many hats that recruiters were wearing in a time when the job markets became much more competitive. So, you know, recruiters, typically they'll get your resume online and they'll call you, they'll do a phone screening, they'll pass you on to a hiring manager, and then they'll stay with you through that process and they'll offer you the job. Well, Shally, when he was thinking about sourcing, he realized there's actually a need at the front end to just really identify engage and nurture people because just because I reach out to Renee doesn't mean she's ready right now. And just because she's not ready right now doesn't mean I just drop her and move on to the next. Like I still need to kind of keep in touch with her so that when she's ready, I can bring her in and hand her off to the recruiter who no doubt will have more jobs later. So he was kind of thinking about that, you know, separating that. So you have more of a nurturing and identifying role separate from the process driven. Let me just move you through. So that was kind of how that role started to set that recruiter role kind of start, started to separate. And then companies, I think, learned that it was a competitive advantage, right? Because when I was at Google, I was pretty flabbergasted that they were getting 3 million resumes a year and they still needed sourcers. So I was like, hmm, this is interesting. But you can go after who you want when you have a sourcer. You don't control who comes in in that 3 million applicant pool. So it's still a very keen way of finding the best people for all of your projects, even the ones that that aren't public yet. So sourcing is really a competitive advantage for companies now. Identify, engage, nurture. Yep. You just schooled me. Oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) I actually use an acronym to remember it when I'm teaching sources and I use idea, the big idea. So I say identify, engage, and assess. But I actually like nurture because that is the piece that is missing from that assess part. So I may have to change my acronym. (laughs) I love it. I love it. And so you mentioned, you know, teaching a class. So talk to me about Talent Genie and 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 the birth of Talent Genie. So for those of you who are not familiar, again, the Maisha Cannon is a voice and a leader, a thought leader in this space. And she has been all over the world with her knowledge, teaching groups and organizations about the art of uh, sourcing. So Talent Genie, who, tell me when that came about. No, that's, I, I had a good story for it, a source con that you saw me at, and I've forgotten it now. <laughs> but it's from, you know, the French word uh, genie means genius. So it's kind of like 
a play on like being a genius at finding talent, you know, and, and people, you know, are really talented, you know, um, everyone has a talent. And sometimes I think it takes a little bit more to find out what that is, you know, than that's than you're able to do in your typical recruiting role, just a 15 minute phone screening, you're asking your checklist of questions and you hang up. So I like to go beyond that and kind of dig deeper and then help people kind of uncover that talent. And even if it's not a match for the job I'm working on, they can go on their way kind of knowing like, oh, okay, that's something I hadn't thought of. So yeah, that's kind of how Talent Genie came to be. And I just like to tweet about, it's the Twitter um, handle at Talent Genie. And I just like to tweet about business, recruiting, sourcing, leadership, all those things, but just have a passion for that, that people connection piece and that, you know, like discovering your inner strengths. So that's kind of how I take that. That's at Talent Genie, G-E-N-I-E, uh, on Twitter. I know job seekers will tend to follow industry leaders and people in their space, which is really important. But something that I have learned and tell people that I mentor is you need to get into the heads of the sourcers and the recruiters as well to find out, you know, what are they looking for? What's important to them? Um, so I'm telling you, Maisha is definitely a person that you want to learn from. So what do you think is the biggest mistake that job seekers make that you have throughout your career have seen? Yeah, I think the biggest kind of misstep that people make going back to the day when I was reviewing resumes in my dorm room at Loyola and wasn't charging when I should have been charging (laughs) is that they approach their resume as a one size fits all. So they build this resume that they're really proud of and it encapsulates like all their experience going back to high school probably. And then they get online and start sending it as it is to every different job. And, you know, really, I think after the great recession that you mentioned, um, I think there was a big shift and that you needed to customize your resume for that job because it, it, you can't just play it where you just, I think they call it like um, spray and pray. You know, you just hope, you hope it's going to land somewhere. Like things have gotten much more sophisticated with technology and using, you know, applicant tracking software to kind of scan your resume for words before that resume even gets put in front of a human recruiter to review. So yeah, you just have to be much more thoughtful about how you present your skills for each job. And I like to recommend this site called jobscan.co for candidates so that they can copy and paste their resume, copy and paste the job description, and then click a button. And then that algorithm will tell you, you know, you repeated 30% of the words that were on the job description. So that's your clue that, oh, this is not customized. This is not hitting on those key concepts that the job description is talking about. So yeah, a site like that back in the day would have saved me a lot of agony from just like going line by line and trying to give job seekers that advice. But yeah, that's the biggest thing is just customize your resume for the actual job. And that means you'll have multiple resumes saved on your computer. No big deal. So that uh, tool that you mentioned, um, almost like a resume hack, right? In, in understanding kind of how your resume lines up to job postings. Do you feel like that creates an an authentic resume because now you're learning how to kind of game it a little bit. Great point. Hmm. I mean, yes and no, because if that um, experience on jobscan.co shows you how you can better word 
you know, your experience or maybe bring in experience that you had skipped over, then it's really just kind of a light bulb moment for you. Like, oh yeah, that's true. I'm, I'm a teacher applying for a teaching job and 50% of my resume is about my marketing internships. Yeah. I probably should delete that part. Yeah. But to your point, if, if you're now making up stuff to try to meet the algorithm, then that's your bad. Like that's not, that's not what you should be doing yet. And it's just, and sometimes that's the epiphany. I've had that epiphany. Like I'm probably not ready to apply for this job if I can't fill that gap. Like I don't have that experience yet. So yes. So yeah, that's, that's true. And, and, People could gain it. I could see that. Right. But then you still got to show approval on the phone screening. So good luck if that's your strategy. <laughs> It'll come out eventually. So even right. if you try to game it in the beginning, uh, the truth will, will come out. Right. Game over. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be inserting certain that... Uh, <laughs> That sound What are the misconceptions about being a sorcerer or recruiters that job seekers may have? Yeah, I think most people, even internally that I work with sometimes, just aren't sure the difference. Like, what is the difference between a recruiter and a sorcerer, right? So that's just kind of, you know, one piece of education that sorcerers can do to make sure that they know it's not a competitor to the recruiter. It's really just a another set of eyes on your requisition, Mr. Hiring Manager, because we're doing that identification and that engagement and then handing off to our recruiting partners who do all the rest. So definitely that's the first probably misconception is just like not knowing the difference. The other funny thing about recruiting, I think there's a misconception that recruiters just find people jobs. So like there's been a lot of times where people just come to me with a resume or resume of a friend, like, hey, your recruiter, can you help my friend? And like, here's a whole resume. And I'm just like, maybe they don't understand that I work for only for this one company and I only can hire for jobs that, you know, are on their career site. So sometimes they get that recruiter headhunter, right? Confused because headhunters do work with like individuals, you know, and clients and they'll do like a matchmaking, right? But headhunters are usually for more executive type of roles you know, like a VP, a director level. Um, and funny enough, headhunting was much more needed before LinkedIn. Because now with LinkedIn, LinkedIn has made the, the field very level. So I can find a VP or a director or a CEO very easily. But back in the day in the 90s, and I started recruiting, when that wasn't available, you had to go to these headhunters with like their exclusive Rolodex and database of all of these leads that they, you know, claim that had. And so that's why individuals would go to a headhunter or recruiter to say, hey, find me a gig. And they would be that middleman to clients who had come to them to say, find me a person. But, you know, the game has changed with Wi-Fi and LinkedIn now. You can you can do all that, okay, in a couple of minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Wi-Fi just opened up a lot of different things. You can be anywhere and, and find the talent. So... As a leader, someone who manages other sorcerers and, like I said, teach people all over the world about the talent acquisition space, what are the best pieces of advice that you give in your people development of the people who you're managing and the people that you're teaching? I think I'm learning as a leader 
that my advice has to be different depending on that individual's true passion and calling. Because sometimes I lead assuming that everybody wants to be a sourcer and everybody wants to be an exceptional sourcer and be really good at sourcing. And sometimes people just want to become a sourcer because it's a bridge to becoming a recruiter or they just want to do it because they're curious about it. And then they realize, oh, not so much. And they want to do something else. Right. right. So I think I'm learning and even, you know, with the teaching and the, and the coaching too, just to contour and give people the advice for where they are. Right. So it may be as simple as just like pushing your own creativity. It may not be about sourcing anymore. It may be like, how do you push past the wall when you hit a wall in your research? And then we stay right there. Or how do you engage someone like those engineers I mentioned who get tons of emails and emails from strangers? How do you stand out? Maybe we just focus on the writing component. So it's stepping away from like this big mantle that you know some of us serious sources like to wear at the SourceCon conventions like yes be all the things and it's me stepping back and saying like okay well what can this person be and what skill can we um, enhance that they can even use in their next role because they don't want to be a sourcer for life they are doing this kind of just as an interim kind of stay so yeah so it's just kind of learning to customize which is harder, right? As a leader, when you can't, you know, I think about my days teaching first grade, you know, like it's easy to have a lesson plan for everybody, right? It's harder to go in and reflect on my special ed days where we had an individual education plan and every student had a separate curriculum. Like that's much more heavy lifting, but I'm realizing that that's probably more of the approach to take in today's world where you have, you know, so many generations, millennials and generation X and Y all together, I think that's probably something that I'm learning that will serve me better long-term. It's just kind of keeping it very custom. Uh, what's the word for it? Spoke. Bespoke. Bespoke. It's awesome. So it's interesting. You mentioned your days as a teacher and as an educator. How is that showing up as a sorcerer? Is it something that you're just now realizing or is it something that's always been there as even as your recruiter days? Well, that's interesting. I think it showed up in the recruiter days differently because I definitely felt like hiring managers were the students with different learning styles. And I was feeling that push that I had to customize. You know, you have 20 recs, 20 different hiring managers, and you do have to customize your interactions. Some prefer face-to-face approach back in the day, you know, before COVID when we were face-to-face. And others, others, you know, would prefer just a quick synopsis on email and others want a phone call. So yeah, I was thinking of those like individual like learning styles when I was recruiting but I think you're right like in sourcing there's probably even a deeper level of depth of like my educational roots that I'm pulling on because I am doing more coaching and and educating and it's not always you know clean with a lesson plan sometimes you just educate in those bite-sized conversations that you have so I'm always thinking of like ways to do that too so yes Interesting, but I think I do draw on my teaching a lot. I might even mention it in that SourceCon talk um, in 2016, like how being a teacher, you know, has kind of helped me in recruiting and sourcing in my career. So let's let's talk about SourceCon. So that was my first conference being in a space with sourcers uh, in the industry. And again, that's where I met you. And this was also the space where I first heard the term purple squirrel. There was even (laughs) 
purple squirrel stickers yes. that they were handing out. And, you know, I, you start, I started definitely paying attention more around these terminologies in this space, the vernacular about, you know, finding the rock stars, the unicorns and all these things. And I had to take a different lens on this in terms of this is what the sorcerers think, but like, what do job seekers think about being perceived as the purple squirrels and the unicorns and the rock stars? And does that dehumanize, you know, the talents of just being human and being a person? Wow. Uh, yeah, what are your wow. thoughts on that? I've never thought about that. And I didn't realize that was your first time hearing purple squirrel. Yes. <laughs> Oh, that's so funny. So fun fact, that was my first SourceCon conference too, that first one that we met at. So the first one that I did the keynote at, that was my first time attending. Um, Purple Squirrel. Yeah, I think that's such a great question that you mentioned. I think that deserves pause and proper consideration, especially in this time of inclusion and diversity and trying to use the right language. Because I think Purple Squirrel and like Unicorn are kind of from our perspective as recruiters and sources, complimentary to those few candidates who would bear that title. But you're right. I've never thought about how does it sound to them? Um, Rockstar and like some of the other ones, I kind of rebel against because I feel like maybe they may have more um, like gender centric meanings. You know, when you think about a rock star, maybe you're thinking more of a male type of person mm-hmm. um, or ninja. Like I'm sure you've seen like a code ninja. Um, you know, that feels kind of more like male oriented to me. So I've tried to shed shy away from those, but I think that's a good call out on that purple squirrel and unicorn. Like, is that the best language to use for a human being? Probably not. Hmm. I'll have to take that back to, to Tangie, who's the sister who's now a source con editor. I think you met Tangie there too. Get out. Yes, the dentist recruiter. Yes, she's now the we editor at SourceCon. Mm-hmm. We love to see it. Yes, I'm going to mention that to her. We should probably think that because there's there's better words, right? There's so many words in the lexicon. We could find a better term than a 100%. purple squirrel. <laughs> yeah. A lot of, uh, you know, top, well, even top talent is kind of watered down, but it's basically, you know, a highly sought after professional because they're, you know, uniquely talented, so hundred percent. And maybe that's just like, just use the words. And this is the researcher in me coming out even back then, which is understanding what implications does that have, right? And you start to see job seekers mimic that language on, you know, their cover letters or things like, oh, I'm a unicorn and in their job <laughs> title. And it's right. like, no, you're not. Like you're a human with this talent and these skill sets and that's who they should be hiring. And yes, you have differentiators. Right. But that doesn't make you like this abstract thing. Right. That's really interesting. That could be a whole dissertation now. Listen, I've been I've been trying to do like I have this in like a uh, a blog form uh-huh. that I said I was just gonna, you know, put out again, one of the many things I said I was gonna put out. So yeah. uh I love that. You've talked yourself into a PhD program. I think you need to do a PhD <laughs> on the implications of calling grown folks purple squirrels. Purple squirrels yeah. and unicorns yeah. to get That's a job. Odd. Yeah, the more, you, the more I sit with this, it's very odd. Because is it, is it really all that? Do you know what I mean? Like, is it really that unique, you know, to find a person who has X number of skills or X number of years of experience in a certain, you know, software skill is, is it that special or 
what are we quantifying when we say purple squirrel? You know, what do they have that's so unique? Do they, you know, I don't know. Exactly. Maybe they believe glitter or something. I don't know. Like what makes them so exceptional? <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I have to unpack that more. That, that's a good one. You mentioned using terminology that's more inclusive, uh, especially during this time. And I would love to hear from you on the subject of diversity inclusion as a sourcer, even as your recruiter days and, you know, what you're seeing in terms of the interview process and the, you know, bringing in the talent and how does that show up for you and making sure that there is uh, representation? I'm hearing about diversity so much more now than ever before. Um, <laughs> just insert pause here. Let's just digest this. And so while on paper it sounds good, you know, people who have been Black or been disabled or differently abled, they may feel differently about this push and may wonder about the sincerity of the push and may wonder if it's a sustainable push. Wow. Yeah. And and how long will it last? Is it because we're all quarantined and we have nothing else to focus on? Or what will this look like in 2021, 2022 when we're back to being so busy that we can't even, you know, keep up with our own schedule. So yeah, that's kind of where my mind goes when I think about I and D, um, you know, admirable, sure, but there's some things that companies can do to the, to the, and for the underrepresented groups that are already in their population to nurture and sustain and make sure that they feel psychologically safe and make sure they feel heard before bringing in more people, you know, but yeah, it's interesting times for IND, that's for sure. You know, you definitely called out the fact of the importance of making sure that there are environments in place internally. There are the systems that are in place internally are set up that they are ready for this push because you can't just bring folks in and not have exactly to your point, psychologically safe spaces, places, spaces that they belong, uh, teams, management that don't understand DNI. It just can't be a disjointed effort. It has to be something that's ingrained uh, throughout the entire organization. And who should be leading the effort? Should it be the recruiters and sources on the ground? Should it be the C-level leadership who sets the example and the tone for the entire org? And that's what I haven't seen in my 20 plus years of you know, recruiting and sourcing and doing even other things in corporate spaces. Like it's always this bottom up effort, you know, the metrics and the numbers and the pressures on the people who are doing the work without a lot of thought to your point, you mentioned management. Are managers sensitive? Are they understanding? Like I've been called hostile, territorial, a dehumanizer by people in with management titles, you know, maybe who didn't understand the implication of those words or calling a black woman those words in a corporate setting where they're simply asking a question, right? But maybe that question threaten the person and then they went into that mode you know so it's like train your people to speak to one another as humans and then maybe we can stay in the tech space for longer than five years you know yeah. that's what the report tells us the tech leader study shows that most underrepresented groups in tech don't even say you know so I don't know what that 
is in other industries, but it's really an interesting kind of barometer, you know, to think about all this recruiting effort and sourcing and getting people in and then they don't stay, but nobody's asking why they're not staying. They're just like, get more people in here. And there's no retention and growth and progression plan. You've literally just hit a bottom line number, but have not thought about, and again, as a UX person, like the entire journey. Right. What does the entire journey, you just can't think about the beginning and not understand what's happening throughout the holistic process. Oh, I would love to see you map that out, the journey. I think taking another discipline like a UX that's proven and respected and works, I think that's what this whole thing needs, you know, because it's too many solo focus, you know, you're trying to fix your own problem. You need that objective lens. Say, let's take this methodology, put it along this path like we would a customer or a candidate journey. And let me show you what you really need to see before you start you know, dishing out actions, do this, right. do this. Yeah, I would love yeah. to see that. It's visually packaged out and let leaders see it and look at it. What does it mean for you to be able to show up authentically or as your whole self in the industry? Right, the people that I've seen do well they step into the fullness of who they are. And the challenge for me is that maybe I'm a skeptic, but I want to fill out that space before I go all in. I'm only going to give you as much as I feel safe. I'm going to give you pieces of me until I feel safe enough, right? So I think I've yet to be 100% authentically me in any space. Whereas the people that have really just done well they just step into it, whether or not it's safe or not, whether they, you know, whether it's going to be a, a problem or retribution, they don't care. They step into it. So that's a really kind of like the conundrum of it. And I think that's where I am right now. And I'm asking myself, so is it worth it to just go all in no matter what? Or should you still be cautious? But, you know, I have to give myself grace because I entered corporate America when I was 15 years old. I have to give myself grace because I entered corporate America when I was 15 years old. Gem drop. Give yourself grace. That's that's a word, sis. I don't think we do that enough, right? And giving ourselves the grace to understand, you know, the things that we have had to endure. You know, I'm almost 30 years in this. And so I have to think about all the small little traumas, right? The, the thousand little cuts, right? The microaggressions and the things that you see that aren't fair. And I'm processing it all, right? So... Yeah, I think um, I do aspire to be like more me, but in the right space. This is so good because I think people need to understand that, you know, showing up authentically is not necessarily just a light switch that you turn on, right? And being able to come as your whole self and show up, you know, it takes time, especially when you have endured, like you said, microaggressions and there's uncertainties all the time. Kudos to the royal court if you have the bravery that it takes to show up every day, no matter how much of yourself you're bringing, just claps for you, just for showing up. Because sometimes we don't acknowledge what it takes for us to get out the bed and even right now walk into the next room and flip up that laptop and get on Zoom and smile and be ready for what a comment they're going to make about your hair, your background, 
or your face and why you're not smiling or why you're so quiet. Like, bravo to you for just showing up because we don't give each other enough props for just doing that. It takes a lot. At SourceCon, you being the keynote, this incredible Black woman just holding the space. And first of all, Royal Court, there was a line almost out the door to talk to Maisha after her, her keynote. And I waited very patiently <laughs> because people were lined up to speak to you. And again, in those spaces, I was very observant that there were not a lot of Black women or people of color. It was so important for me to acknowledge you. Like I said, waited on that line. And, <laughs> and this was a huge ballroom, by the way. This wasn't uh, like a little mediocre side yeah. room, a little tea room. This was a ball room of people. And so just, I've been so inspired by the work that you have done. And I have to say, because that made me think about like the importance of seeing each other. And I thank you for seeing me on stage, right? Because you saw something in me, maybe that reminded you of yourself, I think is worth acknowledging because I have to admit, I've been in spaces with other sisters and we downplayed our connection for the benefit of others. Like we wouldn't sit next to each other because we'd be the only two black women sitting next to each other in a room of 20 whites. So then we would separate to make them feel comfortable. Yeah. 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 So sometimes I realized like, fortunately I felt safe in that environment to just be free. And like you said, there were so few of us, so it was no big deal, you know, of us talking, but I can remember times when I downplayed my connection and the light that could have been bright by being right there with my kinfolk to make others feel more comfortable. So I'm grateful that in that, in those moments, we were free to be us and we right. didn't just, you know, be silly and be real. Because if, you know, if I was on guard that day and didn't speak to you as you were exiting, we might not even still be in touch. I love what you said about acknowledging and, and shining light in that moment where we have the opportunity to see one another and let people know that we see them. Yeah. This is my first time at this conference. And I had, I think you were probably one of my first early Black keynote speakers I had seen at conferences. Okay. So oh, wow. you literally were just lighting up so many things for me. And again, it may seem minute to some people or a lot of people, but it is just so important in those moments to just acknowledge what you're experiencing because you don't necessarily get to see it all the time. Right. And you can't put it off like, oh, I liked her on stage and I'm going to send her a LinkedIn invite later. Like, no, seize the moment. Yeah. Just, I think in the audience, I think Tangi at the time when I was on stage said like, amen or something, which loosened, like it loosened me up because I was in my head too much. And then I said, oh, I got an amen corner. Okay. Yes! <laughs> that amen corner will just do something different to your presentation. <laughs> right. You know, you're like, okay, somebody, somebody's getting me so I can do the rest of the talk for her. Okay. Yeah. 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 Oh my gosh. I remember just watching you like a proud sister. Your presentation was just the first one of its kind that I saw so much imagery to tell the story ah. with a lot of words. You use this image of like a Monopoly game board. Like yes. this is how vivid this is. Wow. And I never, that was 
three, four years ago. Yes, yes, like four years ago. I have to say too, with that presentation, I did have to push to be authentically me because they were like, we need bullet points and we need it to look like everything else. And I was like, bullets kill. So I'm not going to be doing bullet points and I'm going to do this. And it was a risk, right? Because they had never seen a presentation like that to your point with more just images and not a lot of like content crammed on, but I had done like the studying, you know, I was researching online and learning what presentations, you know, how, how humans learn, right? Like how adults process and like, nobody wants to try to dissect 20 bullet points on a slide at a conference, you know? So I'm so glad that it impacted you and that you remember that because I think we've seen a turn, you know, even at SourceCon for presentations now, and now they're much more open to those types of decks now. It's not like a, oh, you're not following the rules. You don't have five bullet points and you didn't stick to 20 slides. You know, it's like, I got a hundred slides and it's mostly pitches. So let's mm-hmm. do it. You know, in retrospect, I'm proud that I did at least stick to my guns on that, you know, and it's still a very delicate balancing act now of when to speak, when to listen, you know, when to push, push back. I want to find a better phrase for that pushback. When to advocate, when to advocate for my ideas. Mm-hmm. Well, Maisha, thank you so much for joining Tech Rap Queen, the Royal Court. You have blessed me. You have blessed the people. And we're definitely going to have you back. Yes, would love to be back. And thank you for having me. So excited to be one of your early guests before you, you know, all the things to come. I can say I knew you back then before she grew up. (laughs) You better speak it. So, so good to catch up with my sister friend, my sister queen, Maisha. Please follow her on Twitter at Talent Genie and connect with her on LinkedIn and just see all the amazing pieces of information, knowledge, and gems that she has across the recruiting and sourcing industry. As always, Royal Court, be well, stay blessed, peace. And that's a wrap. Thanks for listening. To find out more about Tech Rap Queen, be sure to visit therene.com. That's T-H-E-E Renee.com. Also, follow me on Instagram at the underscore underscore Renee.